0: Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to the Shred Coach Podcast with Tom Adams. Get ready to explore the fascinating journey of Christian Backman, a recycling entrepreneur who started with a bicycle rickshaw business at 17 years old and went on to build Phoenix Recycling in Winnipeg, Manitoba. In their conversation, they uncover the stages Christian took to create an incredibly successful full-service recycling, shredding, and record storage business. Christian Backman, welcome to the Shred Coach Podcast. I'm glad you're here. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you. I had you on a podcast I did like 12, 13, 14 years ago. You and Patty, your wife, were on the Rim Pro Report many moons ago, and it's really great to have you back because a lot has changed in your world. Yeah, a ton has changed.
1: It's been a ton of fun. I I actually remember doing that podcast very well because I think I predicted a huge market crash and it happened just months, months after I mentioned it, so I looked brighter than I normally do.
0: Right, and those those are really fun things when you you predict things that come true, and good good things happen as a result or bad, either or bad, one of them. Yeah. But it's it's kind of fun to uh, to reminisce back on all of those all of those things that we we planned on that actually happened, which are which are great. So I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of go off in a weird direction than I normally do on this show, but I, take me back to October of 1991. Take me back to what you were doing, what you were thinking what decisions were you making? What were you dreaming about at that time? What adventure were you embarking on? So uh, in
1: 1991, I had been going to school with a guy who came back to Winnipeg and started a recycling company. And I'd always been an entrepreneur. I'd, I'd purchased a bicycle rickshaw company when I was 17 years old. And I was going to sell some advertising on the back of these rickshaws to my friend. And it turned out that he didn't want to buy advertising on the back of the rickshaws, but he had a corporate recycling division that was not performing the way he wanted it to perform and he wanted to know if I would take it over and see if I could fix it. So I took a look at it and I thought I you know I could cut all these costs out and I could probably do all the work myself and so uh, I built a plywood box in the back of my dad's half-ton truck and I started providing recycling services to about about 75 businesses here in Winnipeg and just on a fee-for-service basis and just tried to tried to figure out how to make a business
0: out of it. So you've got a, you've got a pickup truck. You got a wooden box on the back in Winnipeg, Canada. And like, I I realize you went from rickshaw to this friend and stuff, but like, how do you, how do you even get an instinct around how to go out and sell the 75 businesses? Because there's a whole lot of story hidden in one sentence there.
1: Yeah. So they had started a, a residential recycling program, selling blue box programs on a fee for service basis. This is before. Yep. Like blue box programs were popular all over the place. And, and as part of that, he was taking money from anybody. So if a business signed yeah. up, they would provide business services, except that he was really good at doing the residential side, but the, the corporate side was a bit of a diversion. So I kind of looked at it and thought, well, I think I can fix this, right? I think this business is mm. fixable. And so yeah. he came on as a partner and I started with a, a little tiny book of business, which allowed me to get my feet wet and and to start to provide service and figure figure things out. And from that point, it was just a race between the amount of money I could bring in and the amount of money I was spending. So on a good month, a little bit more came in than went out. But most months, it was the opposite that more went out than came
0: in. So give me a little bit of early those early days. You're driving your dad's pickup truck, half ton pickup truck with a, a wooden box in the back. Like what What was the next kind of iteration the transition point that led you from that to whatever the next step is. Cause when you're, you're hustling just to outpace your costs, what, what gets you to the next step? Like where, where did you go from there? So the next step was a little bit of luck. So
1: we, we started providing service. We started to grow in the morning. I drove the truck in the afternoon. I put a suit and tie on. I visited businesses and schools. I talked to them about recycling. And then at the exact same time, this is like early 1992, China started to wake up as a country and they started to build these enormous paper mills and it started to, because these mills were new capacity and they were bidding for recycled paper, it started to drive up the price for recycled paper. So Mm. between 1992 and 1995, the, the market for recycled paper exploded and went from, you know, one of our main commodities at the time was cardboard. It went from $40 a ton to $360 a ton. People were stealing it out of dumpsters. And right. so, so we were, you know, we were in the business, we were a little bit lucky that we had started when we did, and we were able to grow our business fairly quickly because we had all of a sudden this source of revenue that didn't exist in the industry before. Ah, So it allowed us to spend, like we were competing at the time with, you know, BFI and waste management and all these companies. We bought garbage trucks, we started like we, we expanded well beyond our means. And then that changed in 1995, the end of 1995, we had, you know, built a big warehouse and we put in a ton of recycling equipment and then the market for recycling absolutely collapsed. Went from, right. went from 360 a ton down to $60 a ton. And we were, you know, instead of making really good money, you know, in 1990 five, Yeah. Beginning of 1995, we were offered a million dollars for the business and I turned it down because I was a, you know, 25 year old kid making 90 grand a year. And the company was going to make hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it just didn't make sense to sell it for a million dollars. And then by the end of 1996, the company was worth nothing. And, and it was probably
0: five more years before it was worth a nickel at that point. So in that interim period, what do you do? How do you start to react to all of a sudden this business that's been going like gangbusters now basically is you're just churning cash, it sounds oh, like it was, just, we weren't churning
1: cash, we were hemorrhaging it. You know, we went from, you know, being wildly profitable to to losing sixty thousand dollars a month. And at twenty-five years old, that's a bit of a that's a bit of a wake-up call. I was, you know, I was lucky that we had that we were able to raise some funds. You know, we brought in, my father-in-law was able to invest some money in the business to help us get through the, get through it. And we were able to refocus the business on fee-for-service business. So we started by increasing the fees we were charging for office recycling programs. And fortuitously, one of the customers that we were doing recycling for said, hey, you know, could you shred this paper for us? And so we went out and bought the world's most dangerous paper shredder. It was essentially a rotary lawnmower blade that fired paper through it at hundred miles an hour. And if there was a staple or a paper clip, it shot out sparks and paper. So how we didn't burn ourselves down is, you know, a miracle. But we, you know, that business really, because it was the infancy of the shredding industry, you know, 1995, we went down to the very first NAID conference um, which I think there were about, I think there were 26 people there and I think six of the, seven of them were from Canada at the time. It was awesome to kind of get together, but we could start to see that the future of our business was going to be in feed-for-service recycling and in paper shredding. And and for the exact same amount of work, our customers just valued that service so differently. And so from that point forward, we, we decided that we were going to take the company in that di- direction. We were no longer going to be dependent on commodity prices, and we uh, we started to push push the shredding, and we started tracking cabinet touches per day. How many pieces of equipment did we touch today? You know, in the beginning, it was you know three, five, seven. You know, when we sold the business, it was in the hundreds and hundreds. So wow. yeah, Remember.
0: you're embracing this shredding way of life and this thinking. You connect with Nade, so there, there's a an affinity group there. How, what happens to the recycling portion of the business Did you, you quit focusing on it, but did it go away or did it stay with you for a period of time? Well, it couldn't go away because in the beginning it was
1: a hundred percent of our revenue. So we were providing waste hauling services. We were providing recycling Mm. services, like commercial recycling services. And, and we focused a lot on these small offices where it wasn't economically viable to pick up recycling the way that you did in the past where you had large volumes and it was all commodity based driven. We, you know, it was all fee for service. So the fees covered the service and the money we got from the commodities covered our, covered our profit basically. And as the industry evolved, we were then able to convert those recycling customers into shredding customers, Mm. right? Because we had a relationship with them. We were able to grow that relationship. We had trust we we provided a good service we took care of them and so we were able to leverage our existing relationship with those customers to make it to make it better
0: so you have this whole shredding line let's call it a service line and you have your recycle your original recycling line yeah. are you then starting to add shred trucks and and the the whole mobile side of this business or did you maintain sort of the plant-based approach to things for quite a few years? So we focused on offsite destruction, and yep. so
1: at the time, you know, we, in the early in the mid '90s, ShredIt and ProShred were were franchises that were providing shredding services. We had this fleet of five-ton trucks that could pick up either shredding or recycling. So we were leveraging the equipment that we had. We were able to put in as, as our shredding services grew, we were able to put in larger and larger offsite shredders. Which really had just such enormous, you know, advantages over, st- yeah. uh, as particularly at the time, those the small yeah. on-site trucks, a thousand pounds an hour. You know, we were able to do four, or five thousand pounds an hour, and, and have multiple trucks feeding that system. And we continued doing that till we really just ran out of customers who would use off-site services. Mm. Right? So we had we had all these on-site pr- service providers, and we were the off-site provider. And so I if you I had a large so anybody who had large volumes of stuff, we were able to, to get it much faster, process it faster. We were able to get NAID certified for off-site destruction. And then when we decided that we were going to go into the on-site destruction business, the market was already you know fairly well vended. And we decided that we needed to come at it with a different kind of niche. So we were able to purchase a truck that ShredTech manufactured that had essentially two different shredders a shredder that did the normal particle size, and then a secondary shredder that could be engaged that would shred it even smaller. And then we went after that market with an additional layer of security so that if your documents being shredded was important, then you should really, a smaller particle size was was better than a larger particle size. It didn't give us an advantage, but it gave us a talking point that we could use with new customers. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And that, was that talking point specifically relevant say to Canadian government regional government provincial government that kind of stuff versus the average business that would be buying shredding services from a mobile operator right and
1: so absolutely on the healthcare side of things and on the government of Canada side of things certainly there were specifications that we could meet on site that our competitors couldn't <sighs> so that so it was so it gave us because we were coming in you know to a fairly well-vended marketplace this gave us our in and again for most customers i would say probably less than 25% of our customers were prepared to you know pay the premium and to require the smaller particle size but it allowed us to have that conversation that we wouldn't have had 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 we just gone in with the exact same exact same product and then right. as we as as the trust grew with those customers more and more of them were comfortable moving their service to offsite destruction, right? right. So because right. there was a cost saving, uh, because we could provide you know similar levels of security at a lower price point, right? And that gave right. us the ability to really drive drive market share. And by the time we were by the time we had sold, we were doing in our marketplace well north of half of all the document destruction in our province.
0: Wow. And, and so at that point in time, and this is, the, I realize this is going back a lot of years, but, but Shreddit and ProShred, both being a Canadian origin companies, yeah. were they the biggest real threat? And we call them a threat, but I mean, some that were competitors, by like, virtue of their, their national presence, they tended to take a lot of those national
1: accounts. They sure did. And, and so that was, it was always a sticking point for us is that we had no ability to offer that national footprint, right? So if you wanted a contract to take care of a bank all across the country, you know, we weren't your vendor. Right. And that, that became a barrier to our growth for sure. And it's one of the reasons it's one of the, it's, it's probably the impetus for what drove us to eventually selling the business. Not that we were trying to sell the business, but we were trying to put together a, a national footprint for, for providing, shredding and recycling and records management services. Most shredding and records management services.
0: Right. So so you went from recycling, you go into shredding, you see this opportunity, you really work to capitalize on that such that by the time you exited, you were 50 percent of the market share. So record storage, where did that get added in and how how did that layer become a part of what you guys were doing at Phoenix?
1: So, again, I think one of the one of the things you learn in business is that if you survive long enough, you get to be lucky a few times. So we had we had been attending NAID conferences and and it was apparent in the industry that the people the, the vendors who were doing records management were getting into shredding the iron mountains of the world and the were were fo- starting to focus on shredding. And we had a local competitor in the marketplace who was a very strong player in records management and they had purchased a shredding truck as well and they had started to make a little bit of noise in our in our world. And so at the time The warehouse next door to us was full of bus parts for a company that sold buses all around North America. And they had been sold and they had this warehouse full of parts that were mostly for obsolete buses, but the warehouse was completely racked. They wanted to get out of their lease and we had a relationship with them. And they said, would you take over this space and allow us to store our parts here while over the next year or so, we kind of work our way through our inventory. At the end of it, you can have the racking. And we thought, well, that's about as good a deal hmm. as it's going to get. And my wife made a deal with the landlord to take over the space. And we told them we didn't have any revenue. So they coughed up some free rent. So we had basically a racked out warehouse with lots of boxes on the shelves. So when we brought customers in to show them our facility, it was, there were tons of boxes on the shelves. They were full of bus parts, but it allowed us, it allowed us to kind of show them that we had a legit warehouse and we bought some awesome software. So in a lot of ways, the universe was saying to us, you should be in the
0: records management business. Yes. And here it is on a, on a, you know, fairly silver platter. So, And so you then grew that business because you said the, you know, the recycling, the shredding starts to grow and then you added records management and that becomes more your focus shredding the records. Yeah. G- give me a sense of the growth of that comp- that part of the business.
1: Yeah, so we had a local competitor, we had two local competitors plus Iron Mountain, three local competitors in Iron Mountain were our were our competitors for records management. One of our local competitors was a was an awesome family-run business, but they had just completely archaic systems. Like mm. just a real, you know, a, you know, Excel spreadsheet to run the whole thing. And we had O'Neill software and scanners and and so we were able right. to offer kind of an iron mountain level of security and, and organization and still bring that family business relationship. And right. we had relationships with a thousand businesses here in Winnipeg. Right. So we were able to then leverage that trust relationship. And it was a wild sales process because companies would put us through the ringer on security for their paper shredding. But on the records management side, it was like, here, go just take our boxes, make this go away. Right. And so it was, it was wild that, that, you know, for their active business records, they would give them to us with very little, very little scrutiny, but in the last, very se- last second of the life of that document, they were going to put us through the ringer on security. So it was kind of, it, it was, it was, interesting for us. That's great. So did you ever fill that warehouse? We filled that warehouse. We actually purchased one of the local competitors. Again, okay. they had O'Neill software and, and we had com- been competing against them. They had a shredded franchise and we had been competing against them in the shredding business and when they went to sell it they approached us and said look you guys are the operators that we want to sell this business to because we thought you guys were pretty good operators and so that really added a hundred thousand boxes to our system and so we you know we went from we essentially doubled in size at that point and that really at about two hundred thousand boxes you're at critical mass where organic growth is is driving the business and then new sales just add to it you start to get economies of scale and, and, right. and things like that. So, right. Though so we moved, like, it, we moved those record centers twice in the, in those five years.
0: And that's, that's worked for sure. That's, that's a lot of work. No, but it's interesting that, that, you know, as this company evolves there, there's, there's these facets. So the recycling company came along for the whole ride. It did. It was, we actually sold it. Yeah. We,
1: it actually got sold as part of the whole package when we sold it. And that was a real fear of ours when that we were building this Hydra, with waste hauling and recycling and shredding and records management, and that it would, be, it would never be an entity that could ever be sold because it was such a hydra. But right. we sold the waste hauling division. As the records management division grew, we went through this process where we said, where, if we're going to spend a million dollars in this business, where would we spend it? And we looked at our recycling business, we looked at our shredding, we looked at our records management business, and waste hauling failed right? Mm. We wouldn't spend a million dollars in this business, and at that point, we said, "Well, we shouldn't be in that business." So we sold it to BFI and and kind of moved out of it. And that was a giant move forward for our business because that division was generating way more chaos than profit. Interesting. Okay. Right? And so now yeah. we had all this this extra bandwidth in our company to focus on, and a, and a nice check, you know, to focus right. on growing our shredding division, growing our recycling division, and growing our records management, and really. The recycling division ended up just being, you know, I think when we sold the business, it was 8% of our revenue or something like that. It wasn't, okay. a,
0: it wasn't a big part. The, re- the other businesses just outgrew it so much. Right. Right. Well, we've, we've kind of indicated all along that you eventually sold the company. So tell me about the business, the decision to sell the business. And it seems to be around 2018 that that occurred. So tell me about the decision to, to make the, make that move when you obviously were building a very successful company, but you had this one limitation you mentioned, which is we can't go national. So give me a sense of, of those decisions. Yeah, it was a hard decision to make because we really loved the team. We built this really good group of people. We
1: had a solid plan to kind of double the business. We'd gotten pretty good at what we were doing, but my goal was to build a national company. So we had formed a national association to market uh, uh, of similar businesses to ours good quality local service providers that we would form an association and we would bid on national contracts. And we formed really good relationships with these six other businesses. It was apparent that, you know, it, it would have been advantageous for us to try to combine these businesses into one entity. But you know, get six entrepreneurs in a room and, and all of yeah. us had different, different risk profiles. We'd all built our businesses differently. We were all at different point parts of our business lives you know, and I, I like to joke that there was a lot of crazy in the room. I was a hundred percent part of that crazy, but, right. you know, it's just extraordinary, extraordinarily hard to focus on a vision for what that would look like. We also recognize that the value of these six companies together far exceeded the value of each of our individual businesses. So we went through the effort of consolidating those six businesses together, and then we sold it to Axis in 2018.
0: And, and that was a that was a monster acquisition for Access at the time. The the six consolidated businesses that all kind of became part of that that sale. But like you said, there was these six partners. But you you have to make your own decisions within that. So yeah. what was the what what were some of the big decision points for you in terms of of deciding to yes go along with you know yourself and the group and. And where you are in your your lifeline, I mean, because you've got you you know you're at a certain point in your career. There's been a lot of years you've been doing this. I think it was 26. I read it was 26 yeah. years, 27 years at the time. So, I mean just just back back into that a little bit. What are what were some of the decisions that that you were having to process to make that sale happen for yourself,
1: yeah. Let so, alone
0: the country. So we had I mentioned that in 1995 we took on
1: two shareholders, both the were family. And so we had two aging shareholders into their, their mm. you know, getting into the late seventies. And my dad at the time had started to show signs of dementia. He was mm. having more and more difficulty understanding the business. And so we, we, we really felt that there was a risk that we could have our business essentially tied up in our shareholders' estates a little bit. So there was, there was some risk around that. I was very cognitive of the lesson I learned in 1995. I got offered, I was 20, like 25 years old. I got offered a million dollars for the business, which in 1995 was real money. It right. would I would have walked away with it with a million dollars in my pocket at, at, at 25 years old. So I was cognitive of not making the same mistake twice. Right. You had this opportunity to add these businesses together to create something that was larger than the sum of its parts. And so... So there was that too. So you were gonna get a you were able to sell the business for a premium to what you would get as a standalone business. Right. So, you know, you have you have those things. There was also some worry component to it. You you have a ton, you've built you build a very good business, but you know, you are one you know spark away from having a significant problem. See all your assets tied up in a very, you know, concentrated place. And so all of those th- those would be the th- those would be the three main things: our shareholders, the opportunity that existed to combine these businesses together to sell them, and to kind of de-risk our lives a little bit, right? To anybody who runs a shredding company, anybody who runs a records management company, there are, you wake up at night with certain fears, and those fears are real, and they have they they have a cost associated to them. And I tell you that when you when you walk away from the business and you're away from it a little while, and you one day wake up and go, wow, I don't when a fire truck goes by, it's not the first thing I think of anymore. Then, you know, it's my building that's going up. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, and I think, I think uniquely that's, that's why I think this industry has a unique perspective that, you know, other people have their own fears and risk profiles, but this one has that unique risk profile of, especially when you're housing paper and storing paper, Oh yeah, not just. Not just shredding it, but storing it and managing it too. That that's a that's a massive fear, and you know it's been realized many times in this industry over the years. Not many times, but
1: enough, enough. that
0: they're big enough the, enough that they're big enough to make us all kind of gasp, and, well, and, and enough that your own. your
1: insurance company brings them up every time you sit down with them. So, right, you're you're keenly aware of of everybody's risk, yeah. and it's not just that risk too. It's people risk. It's like you have a yes. ton of moving equipment. You have, so anytime something goes bang in the warehouse, is somebody hurt? Like you're just, those are small yeah. things that over a long period of time add up. And I, I fully admit, happy not to have those, have have those thoughts.
0: Yeah. And infinitely harder to manage as a small business, small independent business than a large multinational or national organization. Not that they're easier, but they have infrastructure to support those kind of things that show up.
1: Yeah. All those, all those infrastructure problems land on a, on a smaller business they land on the shoulders of the owners for sure. So your IT yes. infrastructure, your yep. safety infrastructure, your human resource infrastructure, all of that. There are some advantages that big companies have for sure. Mm-hmm. I actually yep. think they're well compensated against by local ownership. And from a competition yep. standpoint, I think local local providers compete just fine, but right. certainly there's you know, some advantages to being big.
0: Well, so 2018, you sell the business and undoubtedly you take two years to breathe or three. I don't know how many it is, but we're at five years now since that happened, roughly five years since that happened. And, and I kind of want to pick your brain about how you think now in retrospect and sometimes giving yourself five years to kind of de-escalate your own inner anxiety about the thing and the, some of the crazy that comes with running these businesses. And now you're far enough out of it, undoubtedly all the tax implications and the shareholder implications and all of that have been settled. And now you're looking back and you're going, hmm, what did I do right? What did I do wrong? What lessons did I learn? What were some of the the big things that, y- that you think about now in retrospect? And, I, and, and maybe if we just break this up into maybe three categories, which is some of those initial startup phases of the different elements of the business. And then maybe some of the growth and stability lessons. And then maybe finally some of the the selling the business details. Are you okay with those three oh, categories? Yeah, ab- yeah, absolutely. Okay. So let's start with the startup phase. What Going back to, and not just the original startup at 25, but the, the iterations of the business. What were some of the lessons that come to you from that?
1: The beginning for sure. There's just so many people who have negative opinions of what you're doing or, or want to tell you how you're going to fail and just. Their opinion of your your venture will have no bearing on whether or not you succeed or fail. So that was the the first, like literally on the day we were building the plywood box, my next door neighbor told me that paper was going to be gone in five years. That was a terrible idea. So, I mean, that was like, I guess the second one would be, uh, you know, don't mistake brains for a bull market uh, or don't mistake a bull market for brains. Uh, like in 1995, mm. when, when paper prices were at $360 a ton, I said some things about the market never going down and, you know, that I was quickly learned that my folly, you know, you're a commodity Mm. business and it goes up and down and it's, it's always going to go back. A lesson I learned, not quite at the beginning, but, you know, within the first five years is that even your dream employee can be replaced. You know, that guy who's just, or that lady who's just so invaluable to your business walks in and says, you know, I'm moving on. And you get that absolute gut punch, but in the end, you know, you can, everybody is replaceable and that becomes even Mm. more so when you sell the business years later, even you're replaceable in the business. And that's humbling for sure. In the middle of the business, you know, I I think you get to the point where your business and I remember it being, you know, about the time when the business started making consistently $10,000 a month, we were paying ourselves a salary and the business was generating $10,000 of cash a month. and or $10,000 of profit above our depreciation. Right. Money solves problems and and getting to the point where you have some allows you to take the pressure off the business a little bit. Really investing in systems that allow you to figure out where you're profitable was also a real key change there. We brought in mobile, mobile um, road net. We built some custom software that allowed us to look at the business to see where we were making money, where we weren't. That was huge. Having a rock solid balance sheet, those things... You know, it's impossible to have those at the beginning and our failures at the beginning really made us focus on those things in the middle, for sure. You know, demanding your financial statements are done within five days, the end of every month, that all your invoices are out on day two, like just things, operational things. The middle part of the business is really about operations, learning how to use your data to build relationships with customers and not just build relationships with your customers, but using your data to build relationships with your competitors' customers was a real key You know, we had one of our competitors sold to Iron Mountain and we found out about it on Monday. It took us a few days to really confirm that that the sale had happened. And by Friday, all of their competitors, all of their customers had had cookies delivered saying, you know, you know, we hear that your, your vendor, your shredding vendor has been sold, you know, it'd be sweet if you were a customer of ours, you know, just things you can do if you have the data to be able to do those things. It drove our competitor nuts that we did that. But it was because we had really good data that was, right? Um, that you had
0: worked hard on for
1: decades, a decade, and a yeah, decade yeah. of collecting data. We had an amazing CRM system. We, re, we used it religiously. We, we had a no garbage in policy so that we, we, we were able to really quickly, you know, use the data. So much yeah. of what I see now, people set these systems up and then just fill them full of garbage and, and they're useless. Right. But if you're really diligent, those things can be a huge asset to your business. Yeah. Oh, so good.
0: So good, Christian. On, on the and s-
1: on the selling side, you know, it comes down to a whole bunch of things that most entrepreneurs hate, you know, really clean data, rock solid contracts, realizing that your identity as a business owner isn't tied up in your business, that on the day after you sell, you're going to wake up, you're still a parent, you're still a child of, of, of elderly parents, you're still a member of your, like you're just... Your business life seems like it's encompassing, but in the end, it really, you wake up and you go, actually, it really was a small part of what, what I am. I think the number one lesson we realized that we were probably that Patty and I, my wife and I ran the business together, that because we were so involved in the business, we were probably holding some of our employees back. Mm -hmm. You know, we got told on, I think it was June 5th or something like that on June 20th, stop coming into work. We're like, all right. So, you know, we bought some tickets to California and, flew away but but at that date, the employees that we had, our team that we built, were perfectly capable of running the business now they they probably weren't perfectly capable of developing a vision for the business, but they were yep. perfectly capable of executing on the day to day and and perfectly executing on fighting all the fires that popped up on a daily basis, metaphorical fires that popped right, up on a daily right. basis. I got that yeah yeah so that was i mean. That was huge because all of a sudden it's these people who you had faith in, but you didn't give enough reins to really grow. And now they had, now they had the reins to grow. And if I, if I, if I could do one thing again, I would have given away more of the tasks I did sooner so that I could focus on the things that I really enjoyed doing and allowed those people to grow as business people more. And I guess the last one is that even you are replaceable. You think you're indispensable to your business, but in reality, you are not. That somebody else is capable. They're going to run the business different than you are, but that you are absolutely 100% replaced. Yeah. And that's
0: a, that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. And and in fact, that's the reason that you get purchased a lot of times is because you're you're not the, a lot of times, small businesses where the owner is the central hub of everything, they're difficult businesses to buy. Well, you're, a you're, of, you're purchasing a job at
1: that point, right? There's a yeah. difference between purchasing a job and purchasing a business. If you're right. that, you know... If, you see this in dentistry and things like that, where the dentist is the brand and those practices sell fine. But, but it's when you're the brand, when you're, when you're responsible for everything that goes on, it makes it difficult certainly to sell that business as a strategic sale, as opposed to just a
0: transaction. Right. Yeah. And, and in the, in the actual sale of the business, in in terms of that stage, how did you find, because I find a lot of small businesses, they get prepared for that. Like they're, they, they, They start doing the work of selling the business a year from the end instead of prior to that. Did you learn any lessons about like if you could go back and do it again, how you might have reshaped your preparation for an eventual exit versus, oh, we have an opportunity. Let's figure out how to exit now. Yeah, I think lots of businesses actually,
1: I I think a year is really generous. I think somebody approaches them and they go, yeah, it's the time to sell sell and then all of a sudden it's like oh my god where are our contracts where are our financials are a mess our inventory is a disaster like there's just so many things that that if you that really you should be the minute you incorporate your business you should be building the business to sell it um mm. and and people you think well what i'm never going to sell the business or i'm going to pass the business on to your kids but so much so many variables happen in life where you, you may be forced or your hand like things changed, yes. So, so we had um, we, all of our documents or all of our contracts with our customers were scanned. But when it came time to provide all those contracts, there was no way for us to quickly query those contracts up and provide them as a, as a bulk list. That was difficult. It was a lot of grunt work that you can't assign to somebody else in your organization because they don't actually know what's going on with, with the right. sale of the business. Right. Yeah, so th- yeah, there's some yeah. things that just in organization, you know, rock solid financial statements that, you know, every single, every single lineup. So when, when somebody does a deep dive on your financials, there's no, you're not being surprised by something there, right? You know, all, you know, where all the skeletons are and you're prepared to show them where they are. And in retrospect, when you do those things, they make your business so much better, right? Mm-hmm. Particularly on the financial side. You know, I, I, I coach small business owners now through EO and I run an accelerator group, and these are businesses between 350,000 and 1.3 million. Just getting them to understand that it's not just drudgery to have good financials. It really is solid. It like, it's a solid part of your business foundation. So having your contracts in order, having a real good grasp, building your people, building the skills in your people so that they can run it without you, you know, and having really good relationship,
0: a really good name in your community, all those things you should be working on every day. Yeah, that's fabulous. So I, I just mo- for a minute or so, I, I'd be interested in your crystal ball projections for this crazy industry that you have have a deep history in. You're no longer officially in it, but I know you're a keen observer of it. So what what are your crystal ball projections for record storage, shredding, uh, the recycling parts related to paper that come out of the shredding world. What are you seeing? What What's your? Because you you mentioned earlier that you were pretty good at predicting things, and I'm not going to hold you to yeah, this, no, but I'm, not I'm interested. Yeah, no, no, no holding. Yeah, just, no. <laughs> just
1: interested. If you're right, if you're making predictions and you're right once, you should quit. So I, I, you know, 20 years from now, I still think there'll be paper. I still think that there'll be records management services. I think there will be less. There'll be less suppliers. So the industry will continue to consolidate, but I still think that there's opportunities for mushrooms to pop up at the feet of the oak trees. So you get these very you get markets that are vended by large national players, and I think it's just natural that they take advantage of their market position, and and it provides opportunities for companies to come in uh, underneath them. That's what I'm referring to by mushrooms. I think that there will be there will still be paper produced twenty years from now. There will be less paper produced per dollar of economic activity. So we we would see it with the hospitals and, and the banks that we did business with. They produced less paper. The banks got twice the size, but didn't produce twice as much paper. And I think right. that that will continue, that the economy will continue doubling in size. But the amount of paper produced during that double, the paper volumes may stagnate at this level or even decrease a little bit. But there'll still be plenty of paper produced twenty years from now, and plenty of plenty of documents to be stored. And the information stored on those pa- on that paper will be even more valuable. Right. And you always right. have the risk that the sun burps and fries a whole bunch of computers, and and uh, sends us back to you know making paper invoices and filling out you know purchase orders out of a carbon fiber book. So you know there's always that risk. You get lucky one more time
0: we never know yeah never so know. an entrepreneur or an investor calls you and asks for your recommendations on getting into the industry or buying into the industry and they don't have any history in it let's 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 start with that premise if no history but they've heard that Christian you know has insight what insight and advice are you going to give either somebody who wants to get in or somebody who's willing to buy their way in what's what's your what's your perspective, what's your advice to them? Well, if capital wasn't an issue, I would buy a company. I, I would I would suggest buying
1: a company. Greenfielding a shredding business by going out and getting a, a shredding truck and starting from scratch is going to be a difficult proposition. You'll have no customers. The industry is fully vended. There's the the contracts that are in the industry are much stronger than they were. The relationships are there. It's just going to take a long time to get up to kind of critical mass. Certainly okay. you can pick up you could pick up a lot of bulk shredding and one-time kind of stuff. And you could probably make a job out of it fairly quickly, but to, to get up to speed and to get to critical mass, I just think is going to take a very long time. So if you had the opportunity and you had the capital, I would have no qualms about purchasing a well-run shredding company and certainly a well-run records management company. We're investing in one of those businesses. All of those, I think, I think over, I think the multiples are probably going to come down over time because. If you said, you know, what is the industry going to look like in 20 years? Well, 20 years ago, it was, you know, all all anybody could see was growth. And now you can see, you know, probably a bit of a stagnation in the industry a little bit. So if you don't think you have the ability to continue to grow the bottom line of the business, then you're going to pay a little bit less for that business as you go forward. So I think multiples will come down a little bit. But again, there's always, if you're a good operator with a good, solid business, it still is a recurring stream of income that, yeah. that most, when you, deal, when you talk to other entrepreneurs and in other industries, and they look at your recurring stream of income, they're always very jealous. So yes. th- that has value. And, and, and I also think that it's important if you're in the industry or you're looking at the industry to say, what are we going to add to this business that is also a recurring stream of
0: income that allows us to future-proof us a little bit? Got it we're we're coming to the end i i really man it's been so much great information so much great insight that you've shared christian but tell me what's going on in your world these days what are you working on you mentioned eo entrepreneurs organization tell me a little bit about what you're doing what you're working on what are your plans where are you going so so i, I it's right i i so one of the
1: gr- things i did with phoenix that really improved our valuation of our business and really made phoenix a better place to run was we joined eo which is entrepreneurs organization yep. And I highly recommend that for any entrepreneur to find a group of peers that you can spend time with that are facing the same problems that you are, that, that solve them in different ways. You get to a point in your business where you are looking for ways to make a 5% change to your business and sitting behind your desk, talking to your employee, those, those, it's just, it's rare for those, those ideas to come in that setting. But when you're in a room with other entrepreneurs, those ideas come up fairly regularly. And so if you can collect those 5%, that's what moves the business, right? So, and after we sold the business, we stayed We stayed members of EO. We were lucky to have sold the business for enough to continue qualifying. And I have had, I've been running a, an accelerator group for a couple of years now, which is businesses who are on the way to qualifying for EO. So they're between 250000 right. and $1.3 million US and, and just really helping them learn some of the lessons that I learned over 27 years of running Phoenix. So that's been fun. We've taught the kids how to sail and our, our plan. And I think there's going to be an opportunity at some point in the next, uh, you know, 10 years where our kids will be fledged and our parents will have moved on and we'll have this little window of opportunity where we might be able to sail around the world. So I have that as a long-term goal. And it's so exciting. Yeah, so exciting. Yeah. I, I, I think the idea of getting a nice boat and touring around the world for a year would be, or 16 months would be a lot of fun. And it's the sort of thing you can only do once in your life. So I'd like to do that. And we're actively looking for a business, you know, or, and and we toy with the idea, we vacillate back and forth between buying a business outright or investing in four or five entrepreneurs and then, but they have to be the right people. It has to be the right business. And we're in no hurry. The advantage of of being reasonably successful in the sale of your business is that you're not forced to do
0: anything. So we can go uh, 30 miles an hour in any direction we want. Beautiful. Christian, this has been amazing. I am uh, blown away by how much wonderful stuff has come out of your 26, 27 years in the business and then five years of thinking about it and all of the insights that have come from that. So thank you for sharing today. This has been a blast. And I know a ton of people will get massive value from this conversation. So thank you. Well, Tom, it's always great speaking to you. And I, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to look back. Thanks again for listening to the Shred Coach Podcast with Tom Adams. Make sure to visit tomadams.com for executive coaching, advisory board services, podcasting, training, and more. And subscribe to our email list so you can have first access to brand new strategies, tips, and ideas from trusted shredding and business professionals.